They buy mm-hmm. way too much house way too early in life and cost themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions maybe in opportunity cost by locking themselves into that mortgage and depleting their cash position. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with $1 million to $100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations, not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about their pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of fluffy stuff. And we've got a special segment. We're going to be talking to all the best ever listeners who are looking to be a first time home buyer. And well, we have a perfect book that is coming out written by Scott Trench and Mindy Jensen called Surprise Surprise, the first time home buyer that is just for you. And it is the complete playbook for avoiding rookie mistakes. So with us today to talk about the lessons that they wrote about in the book so that we can get some value from this conversation, then ultimately go check out the book is Mindy and Scott. So first off, how you two doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for having us, Joe. I'm doing fabulously, Joe. Thank you for having me on the show today. Oh, well, it's our pleasure to have you both on the show. So most of the listeners know all about Bigger Pockets. Mindy and Scott are from Bigger Pockets. Scott is the CEO of Bigger Pockets. Mindy is the 
community manager for Bigger Pockets. Scott also, from an experience standpoint, has six years of real estate experience. He has a portfolio that consists of three multifamily projects. He's also done some syndications. Mindy has done nine live-in flips, has two rental properties. She's done a mobile home park and a few syndications. She's been investing for 20 plus years. They're both based in Denver, Colorado, where Bigger Pockets is headquartered. So with that being said, let's dive right into the book. First time home buyers and how to avoid rookie mistakes. It's been a little while since I was a first time home buyer. So first off, are you all talking about first time home buyers as a primary residence or as an investment property? First time as a primary resident. So if you go back and remember when you're buying that first property, typically what the position that you're in is you have a lifetime to you of accumulated cash or liquidity, mm-hmm. and you're about to make the biggest financial purchase of your life. So what the first consideration at the strategic level for someone in that position is if I use up all of my cash on this first home purchase and assume a higher level monthly mortgage payment than what I was paying previously, that's going to significantly impact my ability to make additional downstream investments like those in real estate or those other types of things. So just jumping right in from the the strategy perspective with that and kind of going back to that first step, it's just a little harder to get started depending on what decision you make in that process. However, if you have never bought a home before and you're in a high cost of living area and it doesn't make sense for you to purchase a primary residence and then purchase an investment property, the concept of buying an investment property, it's the same steps as buying a primary residence. You still need a real estate agent. You still need to look at properties. You still need to make an intelligent offer based on numbers, not emotions. So the book is helpful for anybody who is going to buy a property. Mm -hmm. I'm a real estate agent. I come in contact with a lot of people who've never done this before. The whole reason I became an agent is because I have had my fair share and everybody else's fair share of bad agents. It's so easy to find a bad agent. It doesn't really share the process of what it is to buy a house from start to finish. So that was the impetus behind the book is just, this is a big purchase. Mm -hmm. You're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in most markets to buy a property. You should know what you're doing. Your scenario, Mindy, that you described was me whenever I was getting started. I was living in New York City and I did not have the money to buy anything in New York City or in Jersey or Connecticut or anywhere else in the Northeast that was close to New York City. So I ended up buying my first house as an investment property in Duncanville, Texas, south of Dallas a little bit because it was an investment property while living in New York. And now I'm thinking about the process of the single family house purchase investment property. It is pretty similar to the purchase of a primary residence. One thought I have is, should the first sentence in your book be, why are you considering a single family? You should be considering a duplex or triplex because that truly is the best investment So do you mention that at all, or do you talk to your audience at all about that? I wrote a book called Set for Life, and in that book, I make no bones about it, that the way to dramatically accelerate your financial position using a home purchase is going to be with a house hack or a living flip. The first-time homebuyer book here acknowledges that for some people, they're just not going to make that decision. So I think the first sentence of our book is, it all starts with a simple concept. You want your dog to have a yard. And it goes from there. So this is that audience that we're speaking to. And the idea here is that for a reader who is not going to do a house hack, we talk about those concepts. We talk about the house hack concept. We talk about the live and flip concept and how that can add value and how that is such an advantageous move. But this is really about the first home purchase 
that is a primary residence and walking through housing is an expense. It is not an investment. The more house you buy, the more you're paying for housing. And that's true whether you're spending more on rent or more on your primary residence. Buying can be cheaper than renting, and that's a strategic decision that we can make. And we walk through that in the first part of the book. But it's about the strategy at first of home buying and understanding that at its core, a house is a liability, a expense, and there's multiple ways to do it. And there's ways that cost more and less. And then we walk through like there's trade-offs there. And Mindy owns her home. I've owned homes in the past, but I rent currently. And we acknowledge that I just wrote a book called First Time Home Buyer, and I've chosen <laughs> to rent currently because who am I not to take my own advice and say, I don't plan to live in this location for longer than a couple of years. And house hacking did not make particular sense in this specific instance. And so I'm renting with it. And so the first part of the book is about that strategic concept of the house as a liability and here are ways to offset that cost, exit options, thinking about ways to, if I move out, can I keep the place as a rental? That gives me another exit option that a lot of first-time homebuyers aren't thinking through. You don't have to go into your first home purchase with the intent to be a landlord. But if you leave that option open, you give yourself a lot more flexibility downstream. If there's ways to add value, those types of things. The second part of the book is about getting a good deal and the specifics behind that. And the third part of the book is about the nuts and bolts of the transaction process, how to deal with that, inspect that scary inspector report, what's important, what's not to ignore with that. And so the idea here is that the strategy is the piece that we see a lot of people making mistakes with, where they Mm -hmm. buy way too much house, way too early in life and cost themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions maybe in opportunity cost by locking themselves into that mortgage and depleting their cash position. The second part is the idea, hey, we're going to save you idea tens of thousands of dollars by showing you here's how to identify a good deal and narrow in on that rather than buying and making an emotional decision at the last minute when your lease is about to expire on a property with a couple of turds in it. And then the third part of the book is ideally, hey, we'll save you a few thousand, maybe a few tens of thousands on not getting scared off by that inspector report there. So what's too much house? How do you define that in the strategy stage? I think it varies by income level. The cheapest way to live is to sell all your possessions and buy a tent and live under a bridge. But most people don't want to do that. So what is too much house? I think it's when it begins to become a meaningful part of your income. If you're qualified for $400,000, let's say I make 80 grand a year. I have accumulated 40,000 in lifetime savings and my lender just approved me for 400 grand. Too much home is putting down $40,000 and taking out a $400,000 mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. That's too much. Somewhere below that is a better option. And the farther you can go below that while still finding a place that you will enjoy living in, that's the sweet spot. So where's that art? I don't know. But it's not going immediately jumping to the top end of what you can possibly qualify for. Mm-hmm. So many people do that. They're like, oh, I can get a $400,000 loan. Let's look at $400,000 houses. And they don't look at it by monthly payment. They don't look at it by... What do I need down the road? I have two children. I want a house that has at least three bedrooms. Mm -hmm. I don't need a seven-bedroom house. I don't want a seven-bedroom house. You've got to clean all of that seven-bedroom house. I want at least two toilets because, A, that's easier to sell, and I always have my mind on resale value because I've never lived in a house for more than six years in my entire life, and a lot of those were a lot less. So I'm always thinking, how am I going to be able to sell this? I don't buy weird houses. I don't buy small houses. I don't buy really big houses. I just buy middle of the road because that's going to be the easiest to sell. Yeah, and I'll just chime in there. Mindy made a great point there with the she's only lived in a house for six years, right? Mm -hmm. Many, many people do not live in their house, even though they go into it with the the thought. It's like five years, right? That's the average. 
something like that. We saw five to seven, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And I put a little fancy little Excel model for this together, but I believe that the cutoff <laughs> point between whether it's better to buy or rent is between five and seven years. So mm-hmm. if you're going to live in a place for less than three years, you should be renting most likely hmm. all else equal with the home buying decision or buying a house that would make sense as a rental, but you got to keep the property for a long time to get out of that transaction cost cycle that's really going to bleed you dry in terms of wealth if you transact too frequently, right? So that I think is a key consideration that people aren't thinking through, coupled with buying at the extent of the range. And then I know Mindy has one point, but one more thing real quick. If you are buying a house, what we just talked about previously, how much is too much house? And you're going in that spectrum of here's the minimum I could tolerate and here's my maximum of my price range. You can go farther along towards that higher price point range in that first purchase. If you're darn sure you're going to be living in that place for a very, very long time. If you feel like you're the kind of person who's probably going to be moving in five to seven years, that's where the stakes become much, much higher for buying more and more within your means on that first time home purchase. Okay. So Scott just said, these people are buying, if you're not planning on staying there every five to seven years, you should be renting. I will say that most of the time, but I absolutely don't plan on staying there for five or seven years. I'm there for two years because I live in Flip, but I am not buying really nice properties at market price. I am buying dumps at bottom of the barrel prices because I'm going in there, I'm making them beautiful, and then I'm going to sell them. Mm -hmm. I am making... How do I say this without sounding so snotty? I'm making hundreds of thousands of dollars on my sale, even though I've only been there for two years or three years, because I bought such an ugly house that nobody else wanted. It's habitable, and that's about all you can say about it. It's exit strategies. Most people, when they buy their first home, have only one exit strategy, which is, I'm going to live there forever, which does not turn out (laughs) for most people, right? So Mindy and I have bought houses and lived in them for much shorter time periods because our exit strategy was completely different. My exit strategy when I bought my first duplex was to move in, fix it up, rent it out, and move out and keep it as a rental. That's an exit strategy. I'm planning on keeping the property for a long time. Mindy's exit strategy is to move in, fix it up, flip it. And she has optimized every part of that process. She is an agent, so she's able to transact on the buy and sell side and collect those commissions. She knows how to rehab the properties. She lives in them during that. And then when she sells it, she doesn't have to pay a capital gain because of certain specific tax rules for that. But again, we mentioned these exit strategies and you as an investor listening to this should be thinking about those exit strategies with your primary residence. But again, for our purpose of our book, while we mention those, we're trying to open people's eyes more generally to the fact that other exit strategies besides living there for the rest of your life exist in the first place. And that one of those should be living in there for a long time. Another should be selling it for a gain at some point, And you can accelerate that through improving the property like Mindy or flipping it or holding it as a rental should be a third option. And the closer you can get to having all three of those exit options, the more freedom, flexibility, and wealth that you'll build over time. I love the awareness that you're bringing to the exit strategies. On a personal story, my family was considering purchasing a house for another family member of ours. And I'm being a little cryptic because I don't want to give away who the family members are (laughs) for their own purposes. But we were going to purchase a property for one family of ours, a house. And while considering this process, another family member was asking, well, what about if the person who we were buying the house for decides they don't want it? Can we just have it as a rental? And the answer that I gave was a hard no way because in this case would have been in an area of Michigan that 
is not the hottest market, and I certainly wouldn't want to have a property management company manage the only single-family house that I own in that area as a rental. And just having that conversation is necessary before figuring out, okay, does this actually make sense to purchase? So I can tell you personally, with you two describing the thought process that you really have to have when thinking about purchasing homes, that was helpful for me to have that conversation with family. I'm like, okay, well, that option or strategy is off the table. We're not having as a rental. So now it's just, are we going to be okay with losing money if we buy it and the market goes down? Or really, that's it, because we're not going to be living in it. Are there any other strategies that I was missing on that? They all boil down to those three fundamentals of live in the property forever, sell it for a gain, or rent it out. But there's so many permutations of those strategies, right? You can improve the property and sell it after you move long-term. You can improve it, and that will jack up rents and enable you to keep it as a rental. You can consider short-term rentals. You can consider additions or major rehabs, or you can consider Mm -hmm. basic work that you're going to do yourself. There's a whole spectrum across each one of those exit options that you can consider. And we go through, I think, giving a a high-level overview of those types of things. But yeah, you're right. If you're not analyzing your property at the outset – you're doing the buy and pray house purchase method, which is what most people seem to do. And that's where we want to save people from because we think that if you're able to think through those exit options, even if your reality is that you don't have those exit options available to you today at the time of purchase, the closer you can get to them, your mortgage is going to be two grand and your rent is 1700. You know, you're bleeding 300 a month and then some because of the vacancy and the repairs, maintenance, and those types of things. But at least you know going mm-hmm. in what that exit option is going to cost you. And if you can get to the place that's 2000 in rent and 2000 in the mortgage, you're bleeding less after those other expenses, right? And so I think it's just important to conduct that analysis and then make a conscious choice. So our book might be for you, the investor that's listening to this, but it might be even more powerful for your spouse to read and understand where you're coming from on those types of things. Mm-hmm. As we wrap up, I do want to ask about your second section in the book with a couple specific examples. Your second section, you said getting a good deal. And clearly, Mindy, your example of buying an ugly property, fixing it up and making money every step of the way, that's a great way to get a good deal. What are some other examples of how to get a good deal? Well, Scott has a really great method of thinking about what's on the market and what is selling, and I'm going to let him talk about that. But to get a good deal right now in this market, it's insane. I don't know what market you're currently in, Joe, but I'm in the Colorado, the Denver Front Range market, and everything is going under contract instantly with no contingencies, all cash. Three days, it's on the market and it's under contract. So right now, getting a good deal is looking at properties that have been sitting there for a while. There's something wrong if it's been sitting there. So what's wrong with the property? I've been watching a property in the hottest market of my town sitting there since August. I don't think it's overpriced. I haven't been inside. Maybe it smells horrible, but it looks really nice from the pictures. So I don't understand why it hasn't sold yet. And that's the kind of thing that I would be looking at as a first-time home buyer is something that's got long days on market. In my market, 20 days is long days on market. Okay. Unattractive houses. Who cares what the carpet looks like? You can get that replaced in a day. You can install flooring on your own. That's a, such an easy win. We do most of the work ourselves, and flooring is such an easy installation, except for carpet. Hire that out because you got to stretch it and whatever. But paint, 
I've got a client right now. She sent me a house that's got fluorescent green paint on every wall and the ceiling. I could pay somebody to paint a house pretty inexpensively. And now this house is desirable. There are some people who don't want to do any work at all. And that doesn't make them bad people. That makes them not your competition. And the more competition you can <laughs> knock out, the better chances you have of finding a deal. Off-market really is going to be a great way to get a good deal in COVID. I'm not putting my house on the market because I don't want everybody and their mom traipsing through with their COVID breath, breathing disease <laughs> all over my house, especially if I'm living there. But yeah. if I got a letter in the mail that says, hey, I want to buy your house, I'm not looking to steal it. I'm looking to pay fair market value. If you're thinking of selling or if you know somebody who is, here's how you can contact me. You might get people who call you that yell at you, but you might get people who say, hey, I was thinking about selling my house. Do you want to come see it? And any advantage you can get right now is going to help you out because right now the market's crazy. I agree with everything Mindy said and acknowledge that many first-time home buyers are going to be buying properties from the MLS. When you look at the MLS, let's say I have 10 identical two-bed, two-bath properties that are 1,800 square feet, 1950s build in Denver, Colorado within a mile and a half of each other, all selling around the $400,000 price point. And let's say I bucket them off. One sells at 375, 380, 385, 390, 395, so on up to 425. The ones that are below 400,000 are going to sell immediately or off market because as soon as they hit the market, there's going to be an intense war to get them and mm -hmm. people are going, to, are going to buy them. The same property priced at 425 is going to sit there on the market for a long time. So when I, as the home buyer, go and look at the market, I'm only looking at the bad deals most of the time, the one that are sitting there or the ones that have just come on the market recently. And I get very disappointed and overwhelmed because, oh, there's no properties for sale in my price point. It's because I'm looking inherently in a seller's market at the bad deals that have been sitting for a while for the most part. So what I need to do is I need to go back and cool, calm, and collected, figure out what I want. I want a two-bed, two-bath, 1,800-square-foot property in this neighborhood in Denver, Colorado at this price point. This is the kind of price point that they come at and just write it down in like a two or three paragraph summary. Mm -hmm. Look at all the properties that have sold that meet those criteria and determine what a good property looks like and then go fishing, not hunting. You just sit there and say, great, 10 properties have sold that I would have bought that would have been made sense for me in the last 180 days. That means one property is going to hit the market every 18 days, every two and a half weeks. What most first-time home buyers do is they don't do this approach. They begin thinking about home prices. They tell their agent what they're doing. They get overwhelmed by the bad deals that are on the market. And then when a moderately bad deal that is better than the bad deals on the market comes online, they think they're getting a good deal and go after it. And they're forcing that timeline upon themselves because their lease expires at the end of June and they got to buy and move in before their lease expires. No, no, no. You figure out what a good deal is. You go fishing and set up a search. You know that you're only going to get one shot every two and a half weeks, and you might have to take six or seven shots before you actually land your property. You call your landlord and you pay the extra rent if you're renting to make sure that you can go month to month so that you can make a cool, calm, and collected decision on a passive deal search or an active one if you're interested in that, but on a passive MLS search, and you're reacting instantaneously when the deal comes on the market. You're making that decision ahead of time, but you're reacting in real time to something you've already predetermined is a property you're going to offer on. And mm -hmm. that is how you get a much better deal or at least acknowledge what a good deal is. And you can, of course, apply that to the properties that have the green paint or that are an off-market <laughs> listing or whatever there. But I think that that's a fundamental strategic choice mm -hmm. that most first-time homebuyers don't make.
make. They make the choice instead to, my lease is expiring, so I have 90 days to conduct a search. And at the end of that search, pressure is going to mount, and I'm going to be forcing myself into an emotional decision at the last second with a buy and pray approach. Which is probably why people move so frequently, because they're forcing themselves unnecessarily into a property that doesn't quite fit what they were initially looking for. Yeah, I guess there's no reason to read the book now, but (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't my complete intention, but I did want to make sure we got a lot of value during this interview and we definitely did that. But I know there's a lot of other good stuff in the book, obviously. Well, we got to wrap this up, Mindy and Scott. Thank you for being on the show. How can the best ever listeners go buy the book? They can find it at biggerpockets.com slash home buyer book. It is on sale starting March 8th in the Bigger Pockets bookstore. Awesome. And I will include that link in the show notes. Thank you too for sharing your insights and the strategy for how to think about the first home purchase, some parallels with the strategy from an investor mindset, and also some tactical ways for getting a good deal. And also the way to think about it that Scott just went through. And then we didn't touch on nuts and bolts of the transaction process. So there is a lot of other information in this book that you've got to check out. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you two have a best ever day and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template.